We are all driven by searching for something better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, but match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Listeners of Mindscape will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Just go to Indeed.com slash Mindscape right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Mindscape. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too, until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Carroll. Raise your hand if, when you were young, you wondered if it wouldn't be better if there was some instruction manual for being a human being. No matter what context you live in, no matter how you're brought up, there's all sorts of unspoken rules and regulations out there, things you're supposed to know that no one ever actually tells you explicitly, right? So today's guest, Camilla Pang, has set out to do this, to write the instruction manual for being a human being, and she does it from a very unique perspective. Camilla was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, as well as ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So when she was a kid, for a long time, uh, she struggled to understand what was going on with her family, her friends, what, what were the things that other people sensed and knew implicitly that she wasn't privy to, right? And she had to work it out explicitly, figure out ways to understand what was the subtext of what her friends were saying, why people were laughing in certain places, how to have normal conversations. Now, she's been very, very successful at this. Uh, you know, these conditions are ones that have varying degrees of severity. Camilla has uh, done very, very well for herself. She has a PhD in biochemistry. She has a book that she's written that is going to be the basis of our conversation today that recently won the Royal Society Prize for Science Books of the Year. So, but nevertheless, there are is a real difference in perspective. Uh, there's some things that some of us take for granted that other human beings, other of our fellow people, have to learn explicitly. So the great thing about Camilla's book is that not only does she go into how people behave from sort of an outsider's point of view, almost like the classic anthropologist from Mars kind of thought experiment. Why are these weirdos acting in these different ways? But she uses science metaphors to explain why people act in different ways. So as a scientist, Camilla always thinks in terms of science. I think a lot of science friends out there are going to know 
what this is like, are going to be sympathetic here, that you learn something that is crystal clear within the world of science. So, you know, how Bayes' theorem works or how general relativity works. And that serves as a metaphor, as an analogy for the complicated and difficult to understand question of how human beings behave and why they do that. So the great thing about Camillo's book is that it's both interesting as sort of psychology as as understanding how human beings really do behave but she sneaks in there a lot of science communication a lot of pedagogy about different realms of science whether it's psychology or biochemistry or computer science or so forth uh, and it's always of course just interesting to hear about human beings from slightly different perspectives one of the issues that we have as a species is that we are the only species who writes books and does science right so there's sort of not a lot of data that we can get from an unbiased external observer and listening to different kinds of human beings with different experiences and different perspectives is the best that we can do to understand ourselves just a little bit better, a little bit more fully. So with that, let's go. Camilla Pang, welcome to the Mindscape Podcast. Thanks for having me on here. I'm fascinated by the book you wrote uh, because thinking of it as an instruction manual for being a human being. So, I mean, you have uh, kind of an excuse for wanting such a, an instruction manual and writing it, but I think that we all need it or have wondered about this uh, at some point in our life. So, I mean, maybe tell us a little bit about your motivation for why you thought this was an important book to write. I was um, writing it um, when I was little. I didn't actually realize I was writing a book. I just wrote it. I just ended up writing a lot of notes that um, helped me understand what was going on around me because I'm, I'm, I'm autistic and I've also got ADHD. And so that kind of makes a very interesting existence where you constantly feel out of phase with pretty much every person that you meet. And so I wanted to make sense and feel like I belonged. And so for that, I seeked out science, which is kind of concrete language that I'd hook my days to and in the end when I realized that that manual was actually useful to someone else I was like oh oh that that gave me the motivation funnily enough to actually make it into a book otherwise it was just a guilty pleasure <laughs> of journaling lots so you were actually literally writing things down for years that that eventually appeared in the book yeah, completely. And it was inspired by the books that I just, you know, um, read through science, through articles from my PhD. I actually ended up writing a little bit of my book within my PhD thesis. And uh, my, my supervisor was like, what's this? It's nice, but it's not actually academic writing. And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> which is really embarrassing. So I, I knew I had to put it somewhere. And so I just couldn't chuck it away because it was a part of me that I'd built and that I invested a lot of time and emotion right. in and so I was like I need to put it somewhere and so that's when I realized it was actually separate from science and it was more of my own experiment but but it's great because what you do in the book uh I mean on the one hand you're doing something where uh you're helping people understand what it is to be human like the sort of classic example of an anthropologist from Mars or from a different alien race comes down and, and observes us and tries to figure out what we're doing but sneakily, you're teaching people a lot of science along the way, right? <laughs> There's actually a lot of introduction to a lot of very interesting parts of science squeezed into one book in this framing device. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like it was quite nice, because then even if 
a lot of the audience of the book understood the concepts that I found difficult. At least they would feel like, like for me, it was an effort to make um, humans uh, or people human to me through science. And because science is one of those subjects that can raise eyebrows when you say, I'm a scientist at the dinner table, it can be quite alienating. And mm-hmm. I wanted to humanize it so that people um, actually relate to it on a level that I relied on for my every day. So complete the loop. It's, it's great. It reminded me a little bit of uh, Francis Ford Coppola's quote about The Godfather, the movie. When he made it, he wasn't sure whether anyone would like the movie, but he said, anyone who watched it would at least get a good recipe for pasta sauce. <laughs> so you can have more than one goal when you, <laughs> when you do something like this. <laughs> so so this, this is a, an extremely sort of unfair, ambitious question, but... Um, so you're, you're someone who uh, is autistic or on the autism uh, spectrum. How, how should I exactly say that? And then for the people who are not as familiar with this whole idea as they could be, how should we think about what that means? Um, well, that's a very good question. I think um, there's a lot of um, language that limits how people view neurodiversity. So I think by questioning how someone wants to be viewed is, is a very good start. So actually, yeah, I'm autistic and I've also got ADHD. And the thing is with autism, it's one of those kind of, um, it's one of those um, neurodiverse conditions that affects social connection. You don't often get the nuances or it's trying to contextualize things and construct them. For example, abstract concepts such as tidying your room in my case or understanding someone's intention you assume that everyone is kind of a neutral agent but actually <laughs> there's a lot of unhidden a lot of hidden rules that people are sensitive to but they don't speak and um when it comes to autism you also have no filter of the senses you have a often a sensory disorder and so what that means is that you get overwhelmed by lots of things that just manage to filter out on the day-to-day basis and so you get afraid of things that people find silly but actually to us it's something that's triggering um i would also like to just mention how um you know the how autism manifests in women and marginalized graphics for example black and ethnic minority is extremely different to how it's benchmarked in white male um in white males so this is another thing itself is presented itself there's a lot of societal pressures and it's quite complicated okay yeah i mean we're still but representation is yeah, that's a good point that I hadn't I hadn't really thought of because I mean maybe I can ask a little bit more about um, the connection between these different aspects that you just raised because you know on the one hand there's the social aspect um, of trying to understand what is going on in the minds of other people uh, if your if your intuitions or expectations are naturally a little bit different. And then there's the story about being very sensitive to uh, sounds and light and noise and crowds. Are these connected in some way, do you think? I mean, why do they go hand in hand so often? Oh, I, mean, I mean, that's just uh, an interesting question because you're, you know, there are some people with autism that don't have um, sensory processing disorders. Oh, okay. They're actually very tolerant. And they're, they, they don't, you know, you can, it's, it's, you can have someone with autism who's just primarily focused on the sensory aspects of things or often it's called hypersensitivity. Or sensory processes. So much like the the symptoms of neurodiversity themselves, be it through calcular or dyspraxia, dyslexia, autism, ADHD, you do have symptoms which are overlapping. The same can be applied for the nature of autism itself. So um, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's, 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 a it bit, does, it's a bit different. It does seem like we're 
in the process of just beginning to understand this? I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert, but my impression is that the way that uh, the medical, psychological community thinks about autism is changing over time as it gets more input from people who are actually autistic, for example. Yeah, no, completely. And this is one of the things I want to challenge is um, there's a lot of research that has been great for developing methods to help people who are who manifest traditionally as autistic. Um, but now we are raising the um, uh, barrier of what autism looks like by um, by raising the voices of those who, who have it but don't present in this traditional way. So I think um, the more people that we empower, which is what I want my book to do, I yeah. want people to be like, wait a minute, I'm, autist I'm autistic, but I have a voice and I can talk about my experience and not be ashamed of it. Because the more we know about the nature of autism itself, the more we're likely to actually capture that in its diagnosis. Right. Absolutely. So great. So with that uh, as the background, let's let's get into uh, your book, because I thought it was really interesting. I mean, it wasn't just here is a little bit of science I learned about the brain or about autism or anything like that, or, or even just a bunch of uh, techniques that you learn to deal with the world. It was sort of using science as an analogy or inspiration for developing these techniques. Is that a, is that a safe way to put it, you think? So I think when you're, you know, you're, let, you know, when you're a kid, you try and find the language in which makes sense to you. Translate the world into the movements of what you're learning, and um, I, I found it quite difficult and um, quite a bit too abstract to associate myself with any characters on TV mm. or um, those made through the media or stories. And so I was like, I don't really have that, <laughs> but I know that when I read about science, it affects me. And I, and I think one of the main things in making your own language when you feel completely out of sync is knowing what affects you and not being ashamed of it. But the fact that the movement of leaves and me kind of going to leaves and questioning their movement and why each movement was irreversible because of entropy mm -hmm. was a lot more effective than looking at a Disney movie. And so I think this is where I found my language inadvertently through yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. It also is going to delay me a second because now I want to ask about the question of representation uh, of, of people with different neurodivergent behaviors or, or thoughts in TVs and movies because I had forgotten, but there's this great example of Drax the Destroyer in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Did you ever see the Guardians of the Galaxy? I haven't, but um, no, please do, do go on. So there is a character um, who is, I mean, he's an alien, so he is he's not actually labeled as autistic or Asperger's or anything like that, but many of his behaviors are similar. And, and one of them uh, was, you know, he takes things very, very literally. And there are people who, you know, who've said, uh, autistic people who have said, you know, that they recognize themselves in him. And it, it made me think of this incredibly uh, charming little story you tell in the book where someone calls your house and you pick up the phone and they say, uh, I'm calling to see if your mom is there. And you say, yes, she is. And then you hang up the mm -hmm. phone. <laughs> and so is, is that, yes. I mean, <laughs> so is that kind of uh, taking things literally rather than figuratively? Is that one of the, one of the ways in which, uh, things that you need to train yourself to pick up on what other people mean in subtext below the surface? Yes. Oh, yes, big time. Not just subtext, but in the context of when you meet them and how they talk, there's lots of unhidden messages that fall out of 
this interaction between how they talk context right. and this is a thing that I'm constantly trying to tune my attention to to, to make sure I understand what's going on uh-huh. that people uh, that people feel naturally so a lot of it is trying to um, interpret subtext and also naturally I think you, you can call it a form of naivety but I don't really assume that anyone has a gender because uh, I don't have an agenda mm-hmm. so I'm like hey <laughs> I just take you as you are and so I think there are many people that don't really uh, find that find that weird, but I'm like, how can you be anything else? So yeah, it's also a thing you see people. And I, I think, as you mentioned in a couple places in the book, maybe it's especially difficult because of the particular culture that you are embedded in, namely uh, the British one, where being reticent and understating your feelings is just commonplace. Whereas maybe if you grew up in Italy, where proclaiming your feelings loudly would might have made things yeah. a little bit easier. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's it's an interesting one that you you mentioned because in the UK I've had to work extra extra hard to really tune into the the, the nonverbal um, in between body language signals that can make a conversation. Right. And so I think it's actually helped me a lot more. It's helped. It's had to force me to detect those nuances, which probably otherwise would have been masked by actually being transparent in other kinds. Of- <laughs> All right, you've you've playing the game on hard mode. I, I think that, that makes that makes perfect sense. So good. So let's. Oh yeah, I had I had to. I, just, I had to. No 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 choices. Yeah. What if in 2024 you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what's happening. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Babbel is the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. What I like about Babbel is its practicality. It's about talking to real people, ordering food, asking directions. You will put it to use. And here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash Mindscape. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash Mindscape. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Mindscape. Rules and restrictions may apply. So let's get into the, the, the details of these wonderful examples that you use. And I think we probably won't be able to get to all of them, but I, I picked out some of my favorites. So you open the book talking about decision-making and machine learning. And you know, we all make decisions, and that's a tricky thing. But you draw this wonderful analogy uh, with supervised versus unsupervised learning, boxes versus trees. So tell the audience, like, w- w- why has it been helpful uh, to be inspired by concepts from machine learning when you're trying to make decisions in your in your everyday life? Yeah, so basically when I was um, probably um, about 10 years old, when I was trying to make sense of things, humans naturally want to pigeonhole everything. And this I took to the elite extreme to the point where I got <laughs> fooled of it being a continuum. Right. And so it makes a difference between having lots of different... Op- it makes a difference between... Being like, I'm either this, 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 and this, versus knowing what the options are in the context of what you're actually doing. So I was like, I don't feel like these boxes that I'm putting myself in are joining up. And I feel a lot of anxiety about it. And so I had to find another way to kind of navigate through events that aren't predictable or deterministic, because that's just life. And so I thought, well, I need a different approach 
and to not be so classified in it. And this is when that when I looked about unsupervised learning, where you start from the data and from that you have to cluster, depending on what you have, to then make a decision that naturally converges to a certain, whereas if you have a preset kind of conditional already there, it's really difficult to kind of engineer that on the spot when things go wrong. So mm. this is what led me to looking between box-like things. Yeah, so I'm, I'm actually not an expert. Certainly no one thinks I'm an expert in machine learning. So, I mean, maybe uh, we can just talk about that for its own sake just for a second. So it sounds like there's a version of machine learning where you start with some categories. The picture is either a cat or a dog, and you train your algorithm to distinguish cats and dogs. But then there's another version where you say, there's a bunch of pictures, and you know, just try to classify them. Is that, is that the distinction that you're drawing here? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you have, you know, you've got, you've got classification where you have preset, can, you have preset labels for each um, image or each kind of like an event that you're thinking of doing. And you have, um, and then that's a plan. You've got unsupervised learning. We're looking at the data and to see what patterns or boxes it, nat- it naturally falls in. So you might even have a squirrel in there. You know, it, it depends on what the, what the data shows as opposed right. to you trying to fit. The- but as you say, um, I think in the book that, uh, the OCD aspect of things, obsessive compulsive, uh, is happy with the boxes, right? Like if, if you're told ahead of time, here are the boxes, here are the categories into which the world falls, that's something you can easily uh, sympathize yeah. with, but it's not good all the time because sometimes the world surprises you. <laughs> Exactly, which is one of the reasons why it's not like one or the other. I wanted to highlight both. I think there's a bit of a fallacy where people try and think, oh, to be, um, to think of box thinking, I can't think of tree thinking because I won't be a proper box thinking person or vice versa. Like everyone likes to be quite essentialist in how they do things because then it makes them feel like they're doing it properly. But most of the time you just need to just mix it up on the go. Mm-hmm. And that's how you're doing it properly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great point. I mean, it's, yeah. it's similar to something that uh, Tin Nguyen said, a philosopher that I had on the podcast, Lee, that uh, he, he's a philosopher who thinks about games and also how they relate to the rest of human culture. And he says that there's a danger in gamification because there's such a pleasure in having clear goals and rule. And so much of a pleasure in that, that we perceive them when they're not there and you know this clarity of values and goals uh can can make it hard to understand subtleties and nuances yeah much like when you read the works of fiction games and gamification can provide that essential closure that Mm. reality and science can not give us i mean humans crave that sense of closure so that we can know how to act and how to and to reaffirm that what we've already thought is good So I think this um, whole kind of search for meaning is very much supported with studies from 1944 and the human's kind of tendency to seek meaning and narrative. Actually, I mean, that, that's a great point, which I hadn't thought of, the, the, the connection between the gamification in terms of rules and rewards is, is compelling because we like that sort of clarity. But what you're saying that we like fiction, we like stories because there's sort of a narrative arc and there's a payoff and there's a conclusion and life isn't always like that and we should maybe resist the temptation to make life too much like a a compact three-act Hollywood structure. Yes, uh, I completely agree and um, I could talk about this for quite a while because it's a subject that I'm very much interested in and I think potentially, um, I mean, don't quote me on this, but this is something that's kind of stirring in my head when people... um, 
I asked my dad about this actually because he's like I know he's like 56 57 and he didn't grow up with the internet um whereas I did and so I feel like a lot of people these days feel like with so much information we have you know we have everything we need therefore where's the answer it's almost like seeking answers through this this space of information versus living them out through mm. and I think that can be quite toxic and so that whole craving to foreclosure is potentially increased or or the expectation for closure is, is is higher because we have more data but that doesn't mean it's good data <laughs> well that's the thing like when you get a lot of data in some of it will be misleading which which brings up the next point i wanted to mention because you mentioned in this chapter that one of the lessons from thinking about machine learning was to embrace the possibility of error that, that your conclusions are not always going to be true and to be willing to update mm. them yeah completely i think that's in my um which, which chapter was that was chapter nine nine how to learn from your mistakes was that the Oh boy, I'm not going to remember, but but I did. You do. You have a wonderful chapter that I want to get to next on Bayes' theorem and empathy. Maybe that's the one uh, where we we should go to because you know. Maybe. Uh, I, well, give me your version of, of Bayesian reasoning because I love it and I've talked about it in the podcast many times. But I will never I will <laughs> never tire of explaining it. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, the more I read about it, the more I realize that if I humor myself into going completely Bayes, not even thinking about anything else, I will quickly end up doing exactly what I would have done 10 years ago. I think it's it's a very interesting model to use, especially when you contextualize whether something will happen or not, if you have no sense of context or if you want to kind of predict what will happen. However, it assumes that determinism is based on what's, just what's happened before, mm. but it's not just about that. And so to and so, which is one of the reasons why I absolutely loved, um, you know, constructive theory, because it enables you to see the outward projection of what could happen based on what can and can't, you know, physically in the laws of physics compared to what's already happened. So the more I read about it, the more I realize the, how useful it is in looking at events that precede um, certain others, but it's quite limiting. And I think the more we try and model the chaos and you know, for intelligent systems, the more we realize that we might hit a wall quite quickly. Okay, yeah, I completely, uh, I see that, the, the, the point you're making. Um, I mean, one of the one of the features of, of Bayesian reasoning, which is both a pro and a con, is that you have some explicit priors, right? Yeah. Uh, it's both a pro because you, you're yeah. not starting from scratch every time you look at a new phenomenon. It's a con because you can miss important things if your priors are too strongly uh, pushed against them. I mean, ha has exactly. ha have you... So what? How has it changed your way of dealing with other human beings to think of to think in Bayesian terms? To think like, well, if they're acting in a certain way, it's most likely it's for this reason. Is that is that a useful, explicit thought process for you? Yeah, I, I think so. But then, if you do that to such an extent, so I've done it to the point of almost um, I wouldn't say insanity, but I do it to such an extent where I try and push its limitations and question is this actually how it is because you can only so you can only know so much about a person and their intentions generally ah. um but you just need to be open mind that you know your heat map protection of what of their <laughs> reasoning is only part of it yep and i think knowing that they could be doing something that you can't predict is actually quite a normal thing and you shouldn't take it personally right okay <laughs> you know, you, people like to justify People like to justify other people's um, actions according to what they think they are. 
but actually it's not much. Well, it's always a tricky thing. I mean, I, I had Paul Bloom on the podcast and he's a psychologist who's written a book against empathy. He thinks that empathy is overrated. <laughs> and his argument is that we tend to empathize. Yeah. So, sorry, I don't know. Are you, are you, what is your predilection there? Do you think that empathy is overrated or underrated? Depends on what context. Um, I think that there's an underrepresentation of empathy in autism because we don't like to hug as often, but that doesn't mean, you know, I've got my own opinions. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, but empathy in the sense of uh, trying to model or understand other people's inner states, to put yourselves in the shoes of somebody else. Uh, is that something that is very useful yeah. to you? Yes, that's why I wrote the book. The book is a gesture of empathy. <laughs> oh, very good. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of putting it, right. Yeah, but but Paul's argument is that uh, because we're better at empathizing with people like ourselves than with people who are very different, we can trick ourselves into thinking we're, mm. we're being good human beings, whereas we're actually just prioritizing people who are like us. We should guard it. He, he wants to put rationality in opposition to empathy and such. Yes, actually, that's a good point. I think, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. I think he makes a good point. There's an affinity bias in empathy because right. you have this, you know, if you have something in common with someone, you're more likely to feel like you can predict what they want and therefore connect with them. But, you know, that's it's exactly quite right. yeah. quickly an echo chamber. So it's Paul Bloom, B-L-O-O-M, like the bloom on the rose. Uh, you should check it out, the, the, the podcast episode and his book. But... Um, uh, the final thing on Bayes' theorem is uh, you mentioned that it's a useful way of, of thinking about self-regulation, that, you know, you have, we all have instincts, right? We all have reactions to things that we experience in the world that maybe are not completely cognitive, that are sort of precognitive or whatever. And uh, so, for instance, you, you mentioned that you react strongly to certain smells, and you've been able to use Bayesian reasoning to say, that smell probably won't kill me. It's not killed anybody else yet. It hasn't, it hasn't killed me yet. And is that kind of updating uh, really effective for you? It is, actually. Yeah, no, definitely. It helps rationalize triggers that um, are, are there. There's, um, the, the thing is with autism is, especially with, um, oh, what's it called? Um, oh, high function in autism or autism mm. that isn't presented as dramatically to other people that isn't because we feel it any less it's actually created mechanisms so that we can feel our triggers and try and internalize them and process them so that we look normal so i know that the smell of smoke won't immediately kill but i right. know that it triggers me my, my mm. i find it very stressful but it occurs everywhere okay sure. and i think about you know the, the base level rate of inhaling a tiny bit of you know pollution and you know, am I going to die there and then? Well, if so, then it would be in the news. Um, so I try and I try and kind of talk myself through the kind of incidents of you know what's happened before, what's the likelihood. So I, I use base theorem to rationalise whether to be worried or not, and it can help reassure me when I'm triggered. I wonder if this is helpful to people who are not uh, autistic in, in uh, empathising with people who are, if you want to put it that way, because it does sound like. You have to work so much harder uh, to sort of regulate yourself in a much more explicit yeah. and cognitive way. It just sounds exhausting to me. You know, uh, is that is that an accurate uh, implication? Yes, very much so. It's um, it's it's, it's definitely um, takes up a lot of energy to just exist, but also to justify yourself and to regulate yourself, and then to interact normally with others. It's it's a lot of work, um, which is one of the reasons why it's very good to acknowledge that. Whenever yeah. I 
um, I'm social. I'm like, yay, I look normal. The days after, like two days <laughs> after, I, I can't. Uh, well, you know. But it's, it's, you know, and, that, and that's the thing, you have to live. But you, I mean, I admire what you've been able to do. You mentioned in the Bayes chapter that you went clubbing, not because you were really excited to go clubbing, but because this was an experiment you needed to do to collect some data. Yeah. <laughs> was that was that a fruitful experiment? Do you think you learned about human beings a little bit that way? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't do well, that. Yeah, I was, the thing is with me, that's so funny. The thing is with me, though, is that I've got a bit of a curiosity obsession. Like, the thing that's driven me through my anxiety and to experiment is because I'm deeply curious about everything. And I get really bad um, FOMO. I get the fear mm -hmm. of missing out. There are yeah. people doing things that are clearly happening that I feel like I want to be I want to be part of, even though I'm going to hate it. But it's going to help me have more of a rounded view of the context of the social situation. Yeah. And I, I, I'm curious, and I'm a scientist that, you know, goes against the autism to try and figure out what's... Well, that's why I said it's admirable, because I do not share this impulse. I mean, I think of myself as a curious scientist, but uh, I, I love going to Las Vegas and, uh, you know, uh, eating in the restaurants and playing poker. And I walk by these huge lines of people waiting to get into the club. And I'm like, no, I have no interest whatsoever in joining them in that particular experience. So, so good for you. Is there anything, yeah. is there any specific example of something you learned from that experience that, that was surprising to you? Um, I just, it was, a, it was a very specific context that people talked about a lot in university. And so I didn't really go in with a motive to find anything. I went in with a curiosity, thinking this is an this is a very different environment. I wonder how people mm. talk more, people talk less, and if they talk less, then how can people say, "Oh, I had a great night"? And I'm like, mm. like so. I just I just loved even on the basic fundamental level. I just found it interesting how different people interact in contexts, and I thought. I'm yeah. just really curious. That was enough for me. I think that's probably a whole sequel book about the whole clubbing experience uh, waiting to be written there. Um, because I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. like I say, I don't do it. So people don't talk very much because the noise is, is too loud, right? Is that is that a fair uh, implication? Yeah. yeah. Fair. Okay. Yeah. That's what I thought. <laughs> it would drive me crazy. Anyway, all right. This episode of Mindscape is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, a lot of us spend our lives wishing that we had more time to do things. But the question is, time for exactly what? Even if your time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. And therapy can help you find out what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you've given any thought to starting therapy, think about giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and BetterHelp is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. All you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Mindscape today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mindscape. Uh, let's move on to a, a, another chapter in your book that I really, really enjoyed, which is on memory and learning. Uh, obviously something that's very, very important. Mm -hmm. And uh, you you take an analogy with deep learning, with a, with a form of artificial intelligence, uh, because as you mentioned, with ADHD, you can easily forget 
things that you're supposed to be doing. Like you come home and, you know, you're wearing your jacket for the next, uh, you know, 10 minutes or a half an hour or whatever, because you just forgot to take your jacket off. So five hours. <laughs> five hours. So, uh, I mean, how, how does, yeah. how has it helped you to think about deep learning and artificial intelligence when, when you think about how to, uh, get your memory working as it should be? That's a good question. And um, I think, you know, I think when one has ADHD, um, you, your executive memory is, is quite, um, it's a bit like those Mario games that you see where he's jumping from platform to platform. And, and sometimes it comes <laughs> together in one line. And most of the time, it's just away and they're circling around each other. And you're trying to catch yourself in the middle so that you can focus on something. Um, and for me, when it came to making mistakes, you make mistakes on such a frequent level you are constantly having to self-reflect so that you can focus mm. and I think what it's actually highlighted is the fact because I have this increased iteration of you know doing something and forgetting and having to reassess I've realized that actually you take it all personally then you won't really get anywhere but if you have to have to learn from it and have that proactive approach it kind of help you with bigger things that you know I might have you know the difference between forgetting five cups of tea in the day because you've forgotten where you've lost them around the house which happens frequently versus you not applying to this thing like it helps you it helps you deal with the smaller and therefore bigger things of regret right and right. You assess yourself on what you was actually important and how you can act well it is very interesting because there's this idea of you know short-term working memory i think that it, you don't Everyone has had the experience of walking from one room to another, getting into the new room and say, why did I come here? <laughs> what was the reason why I had to do this? But but, <laughs> but maybe the ADHD sort of brings it into sharper focus. So it, it makes us reflect on that a little bit more. So uh, if you were just, if we were forgetting about human beings and just you were teaching me about artificial intelligence, how does a deep learning network deal with memory like that? Is there any specific, I mean, tell us what deep learning is, maybe that would be an important first step there. Okay, okay, cool. So deep learning is, I guess, um, when it comes to um, trying to model a, a perceptron, for example, you know, data in, processing unit, data out, you know, for example, it could be like a simple equation. It's a perceptron that takes in data and outputs something based on a decision that you wanted to make. Whereas neural networks um, and deep learning are a bit more intricate in the sense that you can have many different stimuli and many different kind of modules can process things independent and therefore to one another and that they can kind of mix up. So it's a lot more complex in that regard. It's a lot more complex. Um, but this is great because it helps kind of um, what's it called, split the hairs between points and their association to come up with conclusions that otherwise wouldn't really be present in mm -hmm. a binary um, machine learning algorithm. Um, when it comes to memory, um, neural networks can you know, learn from itself so the output um, of one epoch could be the input of the next. Right. And this whole reflexive process in itself is the ability um I guess to have some sense of, of, of memory. I think I used it as an analogy purely based on the feedback loop. But memory, storage is one thing, but memory and take into account in a specific context is another, which I think people are trying to do. It, it, it makes sense. And I like the, the uh, comparison you did between the sort of feedback in a deep learning algorithm uh, and self-reflection as human beings. I mean, there it is, right? Like we not only do things and act in certain ways, we remember what we did and we say, 
did I act in the right way? And that could affect our behavior going forward. And so, uh, I mean, how, how explicit do you want to yes. say that's a useful uh, analogy there? It's quite useful when you have defined right and wrong. But most of the time, actually, we don't know what's right and wrong. And we're literally gathering data. We're, you know, we're in an unclustered space, or an unsupervised space. So you're kind of iterating. And then you're kind of trying to find the tag of whether it's the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do. And I think that's probably one of the hardest bits is that with the computer, you can't, they, you know, we've defined right and wrong for them. But with us, it's actually a lot more nuanced and complicated because not only are we having this feedback loop, we're also trying to define what is right and wrong based mm. on the emerging data. And that's so... Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's an analogy I use. No, yeah, I mean, I, I like it because that, I mean, that, that reminds us that there's sort of more than one system going on in our brains. We're trying to interpret the world in terms of the behavior of things and what's going to happen next. But then there's a whole separate but related set of judgments that we have, like what was right, what was wrong, you know, uh, and, and there, there's an interplay there, which... which uh, like, I don't know. I don't know what to say about it, except it's really complicated and really hard. So <laughs> thinking about it in a more self-reflected way is probably very it's useful. Probably, it's very complicated. And it's not something that is quantifiable um, as such because it relies on a moral interpretation right. of what right and wrong can be, which is not something that can be formulated. And then another thing that you mentioned that is that is crucially important to, again, all of human life, I say, because it is you, you've, you've written an instruction manual for, for human beings generally. Um, Memory is good. It's good to remember things, but sometimes there are bad memories that we can kind of get stuck on, right, and kind of obsess about. Uh, and learning to debug our memory logs can be a, a useful skill. Yeah, completely. I think um, much like in science, even bad data is good data um, because not bad or bad result is a good result because it helps you be like, okay, well, I did that and that happened. So it helps us kind of question our own narrative and our minds of how we perceived what has gone on and how we can react there. I think um, to debug is to be able to do this self-reflective process and be like, okay, well, actually, because most of the time we're existing, not not questioning. And I think when when we're affected by some things. The you know, actually indifferent and regulated and moderated. We can perform, but a lot of we're just proud. We're learning on <laughs> we're learning on the job, and no matter how book how many books. So, yeah, yeah, I think when it comes to debugging, you need to have an element of humility, humility to do that. Right. Well, you, you tell another story. I mean, your, your stories are great, you know, because you, you really illuminate these these uh, ideas with specifics from your own life. And there wasn't that much detail in the story, so I was going to ask you more about it. This was the story of the blue eyeliner where you said that you uh, decided just for fun yeah. to wear blue eyeliner to a lunch and the people at the lunch were not impressed. So like, what, what's up with those people? Why were they, why were they so judgy about your blue eyeliner? What is your current thought about that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it was a Tuesday, so there's no kind of occasion of why I should have blue eyeliner. <laughs> I was just bored one day and I thought, you know what, why not? Yeah, why not? And it was completely a fluke. But then I went into lunch and I scared a lot of my friends. Um, <laughs> And they didn't look at me the same for the next couple of days. And I thought, what? Judgmental. You know, I, I, I'm one of those people that didn't kind of keep themselves to themselves. And so I thought, you know what? When I express myself, be it through blue eyeliner, I expect the same courtesy in return. But I think it was interesting because that was different. That was a boarding school and everyone was that was encouraged to perform. And so I think it stood out a lot more than I did. It was just some, it was, it was a fun experiment for me. But, you know, this is a thing. Pick it quite seriously 
So this is, so how old would you have been when this happened? I was like, Dean. Yeah, okay. That's, it's a very judgy age, right? We would, we would like to hope that people who are 25 would, would have dealt with it better, maybe, than 15-year-olds just are right on the cusp of figuring out what is appropriate and allowed and, and, and bad and, and so forth. And so you, you stepped outside the lines and they came down on you. Big time. <laughs> <laughs> Wild. <laughs> well, it, it makes me think that there's lessons here once again. There's lessons uh, not just to help autistic people navigate the complexity of human interaction, but to help everyone uh, be a little bit more empathetic. Like, I mean, that story really, I, I reacted very strongly to that story. I know it's a silly, like, two-line story, but I really was angry at these people who judged you badly, uh, you know. Why can't we learn to just let people wear whatever makeup they want? And, you know, if, if we like it, that's great. If we don't like it, that that's not so great. But it, it's just a reminder of how incredibly judgmental people are about other people's personal choices that are utterly harmless to them. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Which is something that I've noticed I've gotten older. And that's one of the reasons why I actually quite like London is that you could dress up how you want whenever you want and people pretty much will be very accepting of that and I, I really like that multicultural um, feeling you have um, to be are yeah. and to be taken as so I think it's gotten a lot better obviously in a you know in a boarding school and everyone's and every tiny little fluctuation means a big thing you get to choose your battles later on so you can feel like they can express themselves without having to feel like they also have to because you know right. that's the thing it's having more empathy and more humility is in the everyday, being more accepting. Well, I was going to ask that. I mean, I think, again, everybody has this process through their lives of finding their people and finding their place and so forth. How important has that been for you to just, uh, you know, grow up, go through the high school experience where you don't get to choose much of your environment uh, to be more of a grown up and you know, finding people who are more comfortable? I think the, I think initially the structure and limitations one has when they're in boarding school um, can be quite limiting. But for me, um, because I crave structure at that age for, di for direction, to, to anchor me, I think it really benefited me because it anchored me in a place where I could then in turn choose what was something I liked and didn't like. It helped me choose my preferences that I needed for the next stage of life. And so I think a little bit of structure goes a long way. Um, and for me, it was routine, it was consistency. But then when I felt like I was stable in myself and I had, I could make that for myself, you start to venture out. And that's when you need to, that's when you need to know to take leaps and feel like you've got your own back. So structure is quite good for letting you trust your own judgment and make mistakes, but also most of the living happens when things don't go. Well, that's certainly true. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's a very, very good point that, that, that is, uh, I'm glad you said it out loud, that, that the structure is very useful because it's it's clear, you know, it's a set of rules for what is allowed and what what, what is not allowed. But then are all structures mm. created equal? Or, you know, would would you say in certain circumstances yeah. from your own experience yeah. that, you know, you, you discerned the existence of a certain kind of structure of good and bad and, and just couldn't accept it yourself? Yeah, no, this is the whole point of it. If you're, you know, especially people who are autistic often in these structures, especially if it's causing friction with their, with, with their ways of living. Um, we already have these micro routines that we need to adhere to to feel safe. And that can often kind of rub against the institution. And this is one of the reasons why it's really good to recognize this and not demonize yourself. Because my mum always said to me, if you 
um, you know, just because, you know, the system, like you, you don't get on with the system it's because you're born to make a new one. And I'm a firm believer in that. Even if it's a system just for you, other people can be inspired by it. Right. It's, it, it's a natural cool. Which is a good, it's a good uh, transition into the chapter on friendship and biochemistry, which I thought was, was very charming. I mean, one of, the, one of the things, one of the points you make right away was the idea that uh, you started out being sort of charmingly immune to peer pressure. Because you didn't understand it. You didn't understand when you were being pressured by your peers. So you didn't worry about it as much. and had to sort of learn to consciously realize when your peers were trying to pressure you. <laughs> Yeah, this is the thing. Like, I don't know how to, well, I don't know how to manipulate people and I don't expect people to manipulate me. And so because that expectation isn't there, I, I'm like, why is he doing that? I'm just making me feel a little bit weird, but I'm probably fine. And then like hours later, I'll be like, oh, wait a minute, that's kind of mean. Yeah. So um, it was it was an immune from peer pressure because I didn't really understand it there and then. It was really nuanced, um, which kind of helped form my protection there and then. But um yeah, um, it's something I still am yet to understand. But it's, it's 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 if you know what affects you and can feel that and question that, then that's pretty much how how I dealt with it. Is questioning it. Well, and you also tell the story of you know collecting data, literally sitting at the playground, looking at the different cliques form, uh, and you know their loners and popular kids, I guess, and and just as uh, as a scientist, mm. looking at what was happening and developing theories on the basis of all this information that was coming in. Yeah, exactly. I didn't really feel like I was part of any of the uh, any of the cliques or. Um, groups on the playground that I saw and so I thought well I don't want to hang around with those because I don't I don't I don't feel any affinity with them but I like this bench just so happens to over the playground and this is my spot <laughs> this is my place and I feel really happy here and um, that's the thing and I could see people and I love the dynamics of different groups because it was like looking at you know it's like a fire isn't it you can get mesmerized by its movements and the analogy that you draw in the chapter is with biochemistry. Biochemistry, of course, I make no claims to understand and is infinitely complicated, but apparently you had a little epiphany when watching a football team. This is what we Americans would call soccer, but the point is that uh, you realize that, that they're like proteins. <laughs> in, so explain the analogy between yeah. uh, people on a team and proteins. Well, basically, this is me looking at cliques on the playground. There's lots of Blob, big blobs of people and small blobs of people and they kind of all work together but cooperatively and sometimes not so cooperatively to have a certain goal either be dominating the playground or just you know um I don't know just just not getting bullied or, or fitting in and I was I, I like to watch football I find it a very therapeutic um and I thought wait a minute these are doing the same it's almost like a form of agent-based modeling that I mm. had, had in my head when I was about 13 it's a very good model for modeling um discrete agents that have a common goal and um and i thought wait a minute we're like people the dynamic each football player is like someone on the playground some of them sit together some of them don't but they have a motive and to just to shoot the goal and i thought this is amazing because they're similar especially when they orchestrate cellular signaling in the cell for example to communicate the environment to the cell nucleus to grow more because nutrients and I was like, well, this is very much like a clique. You've got different protein elements that have different roles, but are nevertheless are kind of interlinked with each other so they can go from outside to inside to a decision. And I love that. 
An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge. Now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is gonna be good. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your live sports experience at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. And uh, there's something about proteins that you understand better than I do. So uh, maybe your your professional expertise can help us here because there's you, you bring up the fact that human beings, for example, will have different faces at work and at home, will sort of have different personalities or whatever. And I gathered... That I think I know more about human beings than about proteins. So do proteins also have this feature that they can sort of behave in different ways in different contexts? Yeah, completely, especially when you look at protein domains. So there is these things where, you know, evolutionary models um, of that can perform certain functions. You can have a protein that has just one function. You can have different domains that act together that have evolved to um, from two different functions, but for one hybrid function. So there are many different ways in alters kind of activity through the domains it possesses, mm-hmm. but also it binding other proteins. And I find that exquisite. <laughs> and and there's a there's even if I understand what you said in the book, there's even a nature and nurture kind of thing. I mean, there's the structure of the protein just from its chemical composition uh morphology but then proteins learn or are affected by their environments in some way that we would analogize to the nurturing of a human being yes completely um so i looked at the you know protein structure for from the, when it's expressed in dna and then it's into rna or um and then it's made into a protein and it folds accordingly um based on the sequence it possesses but also its environment and also with the help of other proteins that help it fold in a certain shape that to performance function and I was like oh my god there's so much like um you know because protein folding is a whole new field of biochemistry itself where right. it's very difficult to um predict from just one sequence what the structure is going to be and um it, if we know the structure then we know a lot more about its behavior and where drugs bind it's a it's a big topic which is why um alpha fold was such a success um even though it was based on pretty much a decade of academic research um so, yeah, um, you know, proteins, much like people, are a consequence of the DNA, but also are inextricably linked to. But then, uh, like a good scientist, you say that, you know, the analogy is not perfect because you say that the protein molecules do not have egos, <laughs> but the human beings do. So we have to be careful not to uh, think of human beings too much like a little bit of protein because you, you can bruise the feelings of a human being, yeah. in which case, in, yeah. which, in the sense that the proteins don't really feel. I, I guess so. I mean, one can interpret many ways in, 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 in this analogy, but for me, it was about to highlight the biological versatility between how a protein can perform in different environments and it be beneficial to the cell for example you know not to bring up cancer in a positive light but it definitely uses this mechanism of um um promis- it's called protein promiscuity to try and alter the functions to adapt to its environment and i think it's uh, we can learn a lot about how biology adapts so that we can kind of let loose of the ego and actually express ourselves in many so there, it's actually called protein promiscuity um, actually, well, there's a it's what you can have. There's these proteins called promiscuous uh, proteins, specifically enzymes, which can bind many different substrates, which is very good for like metabolism and you binding lots of different intermediates. So you can have generalist enzymes and specialists, and um, yeah, that's a whole new field itself. It's really cool. <laughs> Should give the proteins in more cancer. Credit here. You know, there are many. Yeah. <laughs> 
And, and this is pretty close. I mean, maybe this is a little bit of a, a, a divergence, but that's okay. This is pretty close to your actual academic work, right? Which we haven't really talked about. You're a cancer bioinformatics. Mm-hmm. Can, can you t- tell us what that is, what you do in your day job? Yes. So basically, I'm a scientist um, looking at the... Um, I guess the genomic and proteomic data of cancer evolution. So the, the unique thing about it is that there are many different, there's lots of different data, there's lots of layered multiomics of what a cancer is about um, at any one time point. However, that can change dramatically throughout its evolution. So the great thing about um, my work and what I love about it is the fact that we have data at different points in the tumor and at different time points. Mm. So the lab that I um, collaborated with. Um, it's called Tracer X, and it's at the Francis Crick Institute. They've done a remarkable job in making the most of static measurements to monic system by actually taking these measurements at different spaces and, and, and time. So, um, and from that, we try and a convergence within these time points on which mutations converge to protein structures, aka throughout protein evolution, throughout cancer evolution what are the proteins that are most affected at different time points and that helps us prioritize a bit more about which are responsible for resistance mm. okay cool i mean that's a, a, someday you'll have to write a book about this too because i think this is a very exciting uh rapidly moving field <laughs> and then okay the final thing on the biochemistry uh you draw another really good analogy about different kinds of chemical bonds right because probably again i'm I'll, maybe i'm overinterpreting, so you can help me here but um you might naively think that you know people like each other or don't like each other, and that's more or less it. But the, there's a richness in different kinds of chemical bonds of covalent, and ionic, et cetera, that 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 mm-hmm. actually helps us understand some of the richness of human attractions and and repulsion. Yeah. So basically, it was it was it was something that I tried to. Um, I didn't realize I was modeling it. To be honest, it was an accident. Um, <laughs> Um, in, in English, someone asked me about the relationship between two characters in a book. And for me, it, was, it wasn't about the uh, kind of curse of nuance. It was more about like the mathematical formulae. Because if you ask me what a relationship is, I'm like, okay, modeled throughout time. And for me, it was tan X, and my, everyone laughed like big time. They thought I was making the Mickey. But I was like, no, this is actually a solid answer. You just don't yeah. realize it yet. Yeah. <laughs> and um, then I started to realize that these different bonds were actually a dynamic equilibrium between attachment and detachment. And I was like, wait a minute, they're just like chemical bonds. And so I spent time just kind of looking at the chemical bonds I learned in um, A-levels or GCSE, and also the different people that I knew. And so I spent a lot of my time mapping what I thought I knew into what actually happened. And I found that actually it was quite a lot of you know, interactions, be it ionic or covalent, and some, quite a lot of them, hydrophobic. So, <laughs> Well, no, expand upon the, the hydrophobic bullies a little bit, right? Because <laughs> people probably don't even know a lot about what it means to be a hydrophobic yeah. molecule. Well, like, you know, you have these cliques of people that are scared to interact with anyone else because it might affect their reputation and they're only content when they're together because they have the commonality of not wanting to interact with anything that's different. Well, oil molecules are the same. Um, if you look at, if you drop... Um, oil and water they cage together because it's more and um, you know it's more thermodynamically favorable because to interact with water if you're non-polar is a very difficult place to be you're like well i've got nothing to grab onto i'm just gonna you know cage with my um with someone that's similar to me so a lot of bonds were based on kind of looking at the different atoms and sharing electrons and pulling them and apart together was this was actually quite different this was kind of an active of polarity and i was like 
yeah, some people do that because they're scared to interact with. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that offers any solutions to how to deal with those people, but it is it is a vivid uh, connection, and, and it actually again it offers yeah. a nice. That was a really good pun. <laughs> oh yes, I didn't even try. So that my best puns are unintentional. Nice. <laughs> Um, and it slides right into the last thing I wanted to talk about, which is your chapter on etiquette and game theory. I'm, I'm a big fan of game theory. I love it. And uh, etiquette is, is tricky. It's a, it's a hard thing, especially like we said, in British cultures of all places where there's a royal family and all the way on down uh, the, to the hoi polloi. Um, so you, you mentioned that your one's first instinct is to treat everybody the same. And especially when you were younger, like you did not perceive differences of age and status or anything like that when you interacted with different kinds of people. No. And that got me into big trouble with teachers and figures of authority. Um, and so, yeah, I didn't really question etiquette. I just knew that I had to hold my chopsticks a certain way I had to hold my knife and fork a certain way I thought it was kind of very practical measure etiquette but over time and even ever some more now I'm updating my models of etiquette of etiquette because it isn't just about um, interacting with someone and making them feel comfortable it's actually being aware of the fact that not everyone is equal it's treating them equally but sometimes you know you have the social context of like black lives matter and be colorblind so for example if you treat um, if you act as if that history isn't happening, that can be quite offensive. So I think etiquette today takes on a very different tune than um, being colorblind, um, for example. And you need to be to have the real etiquette is to a to not discriminate in the first place. But there's another level now where to be more aware of the differences that can occur. For example, in transgender, in sexuality, uh, you know, LGBTQ um, plus. There's lots of different new etiquette. And I think it's about um, navigating those. I could write a whole book on that one. I find that quite interesting topic. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I think you're making a very good point here because, of course, there's a lot of resistance to uh, underrepresented or discriminated against cultures or subgroups of people asking for their due or, you know, being treated as they want to be treated. Um People, you know, people have a certain way of acting and they like that way of acting and they don't want to be told that it's, it's been harmful all along. But but you're making the point that that's, that's that kind of relearning of how to treat people is just something that you had to learn from the start for everybody. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I think whenever someone says to me, oh, I wasn't brought up with that or oh, that's a that's, that's, that's a useless thing to consider. And I'm like, well, it's not because I've managed to learn something that I didn't realize was useful but actually, it's made me connect more with people and be more empathetic. So I don't excuse if you can't learn it. I'm like, well, if I did, then <laughs> right, exactly. And it's it's a tr tricky thing because there's sort of the explicit rules of etiquette that we can you know just ask somebody, ask somebody, and they'll tell us. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are implicit, a lot of things that you're either just supposed to pick up from the ether or or infer from behavior. And so the 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 work of making those implicit things a little bit more explicit is probably useful for everybody. Yeah, which is why I think it's also not being afraid to ask. And I think people associate asking with being rude, but it's not. For example, if I said to you, what are your pronouns? It's, mm -hmm. okay, it's okay to ask because we're still learning. And I think this is where etiquette has changed, is that asking is actually a polite thing to do. Right. Very, very... Uh... I think it's a valuable lesson to learn all around. And 
your extra thing that you're adding here is to analogize it or even just use game theory uh, to think about this. I mean, game theory, we, we talked about modeling, agent-based modeling, et cetera, but game theory has this extra complication in that you need to understand the goals of the other person in order to find the happy equilibrium for all of us. Yeah, completely. And I think it's about knowing that there is more to um, an event happening than or than just what you want. And this element of cooperation is basically um, a very innate in human evolution. We, you know, we, as much as we like to be individualistic and independent and productive and all these buzzwords, ultimately we're doing it because we're doing it for love. <laughs> I'm a bit of a romanticist when it comes to this kind of thing. I think everyone ultimately wants to make sure that their family is happy and well-fed. And mm. even though we might be territorial over on our land or this, but ultimately it's it's to a togetherness that we can't be modelled. But I think when it comes to etiquette, it's the absence of game theory. It's doing things just because that's kind of... And, and in game theory, you know, there's different kinds of games depending on what the payoff structure is, right? There's prisoner dilemma games that, you know, I've done podcasts on game theories and it's remarkable richness of possibilities. I mean, do yeah. you, how, how explicit are you in thinking about, oh, this interaction is this kind of game or is that just sort of background knowledge that, that uh, is more implicit? Um, I like I say I don't I go into conversations with no agenda whatsoever and so I spend my time trying to decipher what games people are playing Got it. and that can be exhausting <laughs> um, so yeah <laughs> that's, that's where I come from like okay what game are you playing are you playing any game oh you're, you're not okay that's nice it can be friends <laughs> right right well I'm, you know it's, it's quite a journey you know uh, you, you have a PhD you've written the book uh, the book has won prizes uh, you've been pretty successful at figuring this out. and but So I think it's, I hope that people do read the book because uh, one could see your sort of current success and not realize what it took to get there. I mean, you mentioned in the book that you felt human for the first time when you were around 17 years old. And uh, that's a difficult thing to imagine having to go through. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, no, um... Oh yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that. It it did take it did take a lot, but I had nothing to compare it to. It was just a bit of a battle that, thankfully, I um I surmounted in the end. And yeah, when I was seventeen, I thought, okay, I've got a place here. I can go from here. Well, and also, uh, you know, it, it's it's a little bit humbling for me because uh, I and, and friends of mine often complain about academia and how there's sort of very rigid standards for what counts, important contributions, you know, public engagement and writing and so forth and podcasts do not count for example and so we kvetch about that and you know wish things were better uh and like you mentioned with your phd thesis you've done this uh all while uh being autistic and trying to learn how to how to you know wear makeup and things like that and so that's just an extra layer of expectations <laughs> and learning that that we all have to fight through a little yeah no no thanks i it is true though i think ultimately it's just um, I like to think that it's living the inevitable of what a lot of people feel anyway. But I think to the ability to kind of say it out loud is something that people find very useful because they can relate to it, which is what I like. And and now that you've written the book and it's out and things like that, and you're still doing scientific research, et cetera, I mean, what are your feelings about balancing those different kinds of engagement with the world? Do you think that you're more attracted to one or the other, or are you uh, uh, devoted to the idea of doing everything at once? <laughs> um, 
I, I, I like, I love both careers. Yeah. I think um, it's an honor to be able to be a scientist and express that and mix it up with the books that I read to create something that I hope will be more informative. So I love that process, both of them. Yeah. I feel- That's good to hear. I'm very, uh, I'm looking forward to what comes next. Camilla Pang, thanks so much for being on the Mindscape podcast. Thank you so much. If you travel, you know how to pull off a perfect getaway. You know after you enroll with your Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card, you get up to $10 back monthly on U.S. rideshare purchases with select providers, like a car to the airport. You know which remote retreats have the best herbal baths and where the Wi-Fi password is rarely used because you're the escape artist. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. Terms apply. Purchases must be on card. Visit go.amic slash you know.